Right, okay, so shall we get started? Um, because um, Liam's not feeling very well, I've got to, to manage the introductions. <laughs> Can you believe it? So I'm going to start off with myself. I'm Joanna, I'm part of the Rail Innovation Group. I'm going to go to Nick first, Nick Lusardi, who's our speaker for today. So if everyone can just introduce themselves um, and where they are, are, are at at this present time. Hi everybody, I'm uh, Nick Lusardi, uh, obviously going to be speaking today to share some insights or some anecdotes from my previous, um, uh, previous career in working for Virgin Atlantic. Um, I'm now a consultant, I'm consulting, but previous to that I was working at HS2, so uh, nice to meet you all. And where are you? Where, I'm, in Red, I'm in, in Surrey, in Red Hill. So, Adam? So, yeah, I'm Adam. Um, I'm currently working from home, um, doing various bits, various bits and bobs, um, working with other graduates at the moment, doing anything where others haven't self-isolate. And I'm currently in Loughborough. So, furthest north we've got so far, Chris Jones. You're on mute. Chris Jones, I work with the FT at the minute, um, leading commercial strategy and technical integration uh, on one of the Heathrow Rail projects. Um, currently in my friend's flat in Wapping, because I'm not allowed back to my own flat yet. That's <laughs> Wayne? Uh, hi, Wayne Marks Butler, CCD Design and Ergonomics, and I'm sitting in my kitchen in the Sun Hertfordshire. And Emily? Uh, Emily, um, I'm from One Big Circle. We do intelligent video and we're um, currently trying to get our video capability um, onto trains and to help them in this uh, um, critical critical times. And uh, I'm in uh, just outside Bristol, just south of Bristol. Someone's got some beautiful bird song in the background. I, I don't know who it is. I've got bird song, but I don't think it's yeah. me. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to leave at half twelve, that's all. So apologies oh, for having to, to jump off. Dave Sampson. Sorry, I was muted then. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I run a consultancy deploying advanced technology in the transport industry uh, around um, buses, uh, but also um, looking, looking at the opportunity in trains as well. Liam? Hi, I'm Liam. I'd normally be helping more, but I'm about to start coughing fit again, so I'm in London. <laughs> um, sorry, is it Sardia? Is that how yeah, you pronounce it? Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, I'm in London. Um, I'm a consultant. Up until just the other week, I was uh, leading innovation at uh, Avanti West Coast. So uh, now um, doing some smaller pieces. Of work. We've got Phil. Phil. Yeah. So um, Phil Facey from uh, Deeper Than Blue. So we uh, de-risk software implementation for businesses. Um, and I'm in Manchester. Um, Mill Williams. Yeah, uh, I'm in Chester. Uh, business is located in Liverpool. Uh, we capture evidence and validate intuition. So it helps with decision making. And where are you? Uh, Chester. Manchester. Chester. No, I'm in Chester at the moment, but my business is located in Liverpool. Um, Anna? 
Hi, um, sorry, I think I wasn't on mute earlier, so hopefully you didn't hear what was going on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a business development manager for Hitachi, working from home with two little children, so you may have heard them screaming running around in the background, but they're outside now. I think we can only see the station. <laughs> you can only see the station, it's even better if you get closer. I'm not at my station, but this is my lovely background, this is my station. Um, Stephen Pilkington. Uh, yes, good afternoon everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm a senior project engineer for TTG Technology. Uh, I'm based just outside Edinburgh and we do driver advisory systems for trains across the UK and Europe. Oh, somebody from Scotland. That sounds exotic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, maybe not for temperature, no. <laughs> um, Tammy Doyle. You're on mute. Hi. I'm based on the Wirral. Um, I'm currently not really on lockdown at the moment because I'm out volunteering, but I actually work in the sense. That's my background. Um, Paul Coleman. Hey, Paul. Good afternoon. Um, Paul Coleman, Transport Consultant for CACI. We are a software development company in the rail sector using data from, from various parties. Um, and I am based in Guildford in Surrey. Um, Peter Wicks. Hicks, sorry, sorry. Um, hi, Peter Hicks, director at Open Train Times um, and railway systems consultant based in, I was going to say sunny North London, but it's not terribly sunny at the moment. Yeah, it's been cloudy today, isn't it? Um, Julian. Yeah, uh, Julian Schwarzenbach from Data and Process Advantage, uh, based up in Litchfield, just northeast of Birmingham. And day job is very much around data management, data exploitation, asset management. So uh, currently in the process of converting our physical courses into online training courses. Tina, good to see you. Hi, how are you? Good, I've been meaning to join one of your events and I figured this would be my, my first event. So um, I am Gina Mock and I run a network, a professional network for learning and education. Um, Magdalena? Um, hi, um, my name is Magdalena. I'm working as a commercial guard, train commercial guard for Southwestern Railway. I'm at the break at the moment, um, so I'm interested in health and safety and development of apps for. Um, and you managed to get back from Poland? Yes, I did. Yes. Well done, good 20, to see you. <laughs> yeah, 22 hours in the bus, so yeah, but happy to be back. Thank you. Um, Neen? Ming is that correct? Yeah, um, hi, I'm Ming. Um, yeah, I'm based in London. I work for a tech startup called Just Park. We supply parking and mobility solutions um, to local authorities and private operators. Thank you. Eric? Oh, hi, yep. I'm uh, Eric. I work at Wild Networks. Uh, we're a startup uh, as well, tech startup. We do connectivity for the Internet of Things. And I'm currently in, in lockdown in a one-bedroom flat in central London. Oh, poor you. <laughs> um, Sadian. You're on mute. Right. Olivier? You're on mute as well. 
No. Try to get everyone to introduce this. Um, Paul Taylor. Hi there, uh, Paul Taylor, Account Director of an organisation called SES, by Software Continuity Solutions, Software Testing, and work quite extensively in the rail industry, um, predominantly with network rail and subcontractors for their software estate. Um, so hopefully get some great insights from you guys on, uh, on the event today. Thank you. Um, so we've got we've got two Craig. So I'm going to go with Craig Sapio first. I think it is. Yeah, Sapio. Sapio, hi. 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 Um, so uh, Craig Sapio from the Energy Innovation Centre. So a not-for-profit company uh, that works on behalf of the electricity and gas distribution networks, um, working on innovation for them. Um, and we were recently commissioned by Network Rail to do a project with our electricity partners um, to understand how they could better improve their electricity network. Um, so just uh, learning more about how innovation in the rail industry works to help benefit that. Uh, and I'm currently at home in Chester. Another two people from Chester. <laughs> um, Tom McLaughlin, is it? Nick G. Yeah, hi, good afternoon everyone. Uh, my name is Nick. I work at the National Railway Museum in York um, and I'm currently at home uh, quite close to the museum uh, in York also. Hi Nick. Hi. Matthew Drury. Hi, uh, um, I've got a few webcam issues and she just have to listen to my voice. Uh, I work for Saturn Communications. We provide uh, digital signage solutions for railway stations and train operating companies. Uh, and I'm at home in West Yorkshire near Huddersfield. Raj. Hi there, good afternoon everyone. Uh, Raj Sachdev, um, run a consultancy business, Black Box. Um, we work with travel management companies, uh, train operating companies, um, and a few techie startups in the travel arena. So, hi. Um, I haven't got a name for this one, it's just got Hex Young R. So, this is a yep. surprise. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to let you down. It's Richard Young here from Heathrow Express. <laughs> I, I, I work in the commercial team uh, at Heathrow, um, yeah, looking at our, our B2B uh, partners and third party retailers. And yeah, I'm dialing in from just outside of Guildford today. Um, Mita? Hello, I'll put the video on. Um, hopefully my bedroom's not too messy. Um, I work for a company called Apinster. We build mobile applications for rail and aviation, which help with efficiency. Um, clients include Avanti, West Coast, Bombardier, Emirates. I'm Sven. Can't hear you. No. Um, let's go to John B. Press some buttons on here. Hello, my name's John. Um, I work for uh, East West Rail. We're building a railway between Oxford and Cambridge, and I am sitting just outside Oxford at the moment in the beautiful countryside. Excellent. Welcome. Um, Dan. No. Um, Craig Tompkins. Hello. Um, 
My name is Craig. I'm Head of Transport for Small Design uh, Strategic Design Consultancy, DKNA, and I love hearing Nick Lissardi's stories. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Craig, and I know I owe you a response on your email. I haven't forgotten. Um, and I've got two, finally, Sula. Is that right? Yeah, hi, it's uh, Sahel, sorry. Sahel, sorry. Uh, yes, all right. Um, it's just the way it's set up on the system. Um, so currently working for Network Rail, been a, a part of, uh, been a contractor with NR for the last 10 to 12 years, working on digital rail uh, and a number of other innovation projects. Um, been part of the rail innovation sort of group for the last couple of years. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, meeting everyone and talking about all our wonderful ideas. And I'll try to fix the camera if I can. I'm not sure how. <laughs> and I noticed that Deb snuck in halfway through the call as we were going through. I did. Hello, everybody. My name's Deb. I'm um, part of the Rail Innovation Group and also um, I work for High Speed Rail Group and a few other transport-related um, people. Um, I've muted my... I've not got my video on at the moment because it's not... It keeps going weird but I'll put it back on in a minute. Excellent well welcome everybody and thank you for joining us so um, hope you find this interesting but I'm going to hand over to Nick who hopefully the technology will work and be able to share his screen because he's got a couple of slides as well but the idea is is that um, we stimulate the debate and if you want to um, to ask a question or um, you can either do it through the chat which I will monitor or you can just um, Put your hand up figuratively speaking um just to let you also know that we record the um the, the presentation so that we send it out to everybody at the end of it if you want to recap on some of the things that were said and also we share it on social media as well so enjoy so no swearing then <laughs> well you can if you mute yourself <laughs> <laughs> right one second i'm just uh, bringing up my screen now can everybody see that has that come up yet? Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So I should say um, my connection to Joanna was also that I, I worked with Joanna at HS2 for three and a half years as the head of customer experience. So Joanna and I worked quite closely. So that's my link to rail. I forgot to say that earlier on, although I'm talking about my previous experience at aviation. I, um, I spent about 12 and a half years working for Virgin Atlantic. So uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to kind of give you a couple of anecdotes, really some hopefully inspire people in this challenging times that we find ourselves in at the moment with regard to corona and lockdown um everybody's kind of hunkering down and kind of um squirreling away any assets that they have and making sure that they can uh, they can then come out of this uh, unscathed but uh verge atlantic um was kind of a kind of pioneering uh, brand that was set up by richard branson in the 80s because he basically there was no competition to BA, and he basically chartered the plane. I don't know if anybody knows this, but he chartered the plane, and that's how he he, he couldn't get back. He got bumped off a BA flight, he chartered the plane, and, and brought everybody back from New York, and that's how the company started. Um, Richard himself, let me just present that better. So he he was famously, sorry to kind of uh, to break in there with a semi-naked picture of Richard Branson, but he famously um, he quoted that if it ain't broke, break it. And that was his kind of methodology. And that for a long time actually trans translated through all of the work that was done at, um, at Virgin Atlantic. Oh, there's no image there, sorry, there we go. So I'm gonna go back right to 1995 and the J2000 product was 
kind of revolutionary life flat business class seat that was conceived. Um, it took four years to kind of bring to market and it was a market leader for a, a very short space of time because it was then heavily copied. So Virgin Atlantic in 2001 or early, early 2000 kind of started to develop, think about what was the kind of the copy, or sorry, what was the, the next incarnation of this and thinking about how can they get market share. So they start to think about what is the new business class model. Um, unfortunately, 9-11 happened in 2001, which basically decimated the aviation industry, in particular decimated the transatlantic route across to the US, which was basically most of its kind of main, um, main kind of revenue stream at the time. They were very competitive in that area. So the idea that they were working on, um, the thing I wanted to share with you was the, the incarnation of this new upper class suite. And instead, the interesting thing with Virgin Atlantic was instead of hunkering down, as I said, and stopping the non-essential spend as we see today in the, in the world we live in, the actual Virgin management increased the, the actual capacity to develop and they set up a, what I would term as a, a crack commando team to actually continue developing the new product. And, um, innovating in, in in a time when it was very, very challenging because nobody wanted to spend any money. And in particular, the aviation, aviation industry hadn't been hit with such a sledgehammer as it had then. What transpired was is they, they created a team and I worked with a few number of these individuals because um, when I was at Virgin Atlantic, because uh, I actually arrived afterwards and they, they set up a very close-knit team. They had uh, a locked area, which only specific people had access to. It was a very competitive time as well for the aviation world. But they continued to kind of charge on ahead. And, and if any of you know how difficult it is to actually develop a seat, they, um, they managed to actually, and to certify it for an aircraft, which it eventually it started flying on 747-400. It was launched in 2002. Which was, which was groundbreaking really. They really kind of, and also not only that, it was actually, it was a really innovative product. In fact, that it had gone from a, what was it, quite a ubiquitous kind of product, which was the J2000, is something that the world, aviation world had never seen before. Um, equally, some of the innovation that was in this was that you could actually take off and land whilst you were in recline. And also there was a separate bed surface to the actual seat surface. What would transpire from that is as soon as this hit the market, there was an immediate positive impact to the company's profit and the increase in the market share on their transatlantic routes increased massively as well. And they got the jump on their, um, on the biggest competitor that they have, uh, namely the one in blue. Um, and this was, this was kind of really what it, what it demonstrated was is that they, they chance, they took a chance to actually to innovate in times of adversity, but actually it paid off massively because as soon as, ever, whilst the sleeping giants all kind of came out from their slumber, um, Virgin Atlantic was already kind of accelerating past them and actually they stole a lot of market share on the transatlantic routes because of it. So it's a fantastic kind of story. Um, it's something that I learned about only after I joined Virgin Atlantic in, in, in June 2004 um, and I joined the, the design team there. And it's something that I kind of reflect on massively because I walked into a company that was extremely buoyant after launching that product. I was actually riding the wave of that, that innovation. And it was a really exciting time. And I joined there actually, I was, I was employed um, as a senior designer at the time with my first job there. 
um, to actually work on their A380s. They're already invested in new aircraft two years after launching this new product. From that point, um, as I worked there, I worked there for 12 and a half years, as I said, um, in 2007, I was then tasked with the challenge of uh, developing the next upper class suite for the Virgin, Virgin 787 Dreamliners were gonna arrive from, from Boeing. So this is the second story, but I kind of wanted to kind of show you a timeline really of how um, innovation can kind of, it, it, it kind of breeds positively within an organization. Um, started the actual project itself. It was a, obviously it's a, in some, in some ways at the time, I, I look back at it now and I thought that was quite a big deal because actually it was quite, it was, they were quite big shoes to fill, but the company wanted to move forward again, wanted to innovate and generally to develop seats, seating and cabins of this nature that takes with, between the three to five years on, on average, if you're starting from scratch. So there was three years of development that, um, that I kind of went through from a, from a seat perspective. I led this, this, this piece of work um, and eventually ended up with, this was named Project URI. Um, named because of uh, actually I managed to kind of create more space for, for customers and actually more seats as well. So it was named after Yuri Gagarin because the first man in space. Uh, and you can see here, there was like three years of kind of hard graph to kind of get to this. These are some of the models right from the start, start off with cardboard models right the way through to a fully one-to-one uh, -one scale cabin that we then, we then took people through and the execs, et cetera, to try to drive through this new, new product innovation. The, the hardship came, and this is the second kind of, the second story really, the hardship came from the fact we had two major challenges that we encountered in 2010. One was that Boeing announced major delay to the 787 Dreamliners, and we developed this seat specifically for that aircraft. So it was all kind of, that, that three years of work was all about that one aircraft. And the second one was that actually Virgin Atlantic, through some commercial problems, didn't have a seat manufacturer that could actually build the seat. So they already invested millions of pounds in this development they didn't have an aircraft and they didn't have a seat manufacturer so the solutions that actually and this this goes back to that point around where this all started around if they broke break it but also this kind of intent to actually innovate in in times of hardship this could have been quite easily let's pause this until we get some more information around the actual the, the aircraft from from boeing but instead of that virgin decided to actually order new aircraft from Airbus. So they paused, they created a, a kind of a, they needed that to actually fulfill the slots to, the, to actually progress and to drive profit into the organization. Um, off the back of that, I then had to redesign the seat to fit a smaller aircraft because the A330 was a smaller aircraft, uh, a smaller fuselage. So that happened. The second one was that there were no seat manufacturers um, because there was some, there was some legal, con legal things being contested at the time um, from copy, copyright infringement, etc. So um, Virgin Atlantic actually created his own seat manufacturer. And it took them six months to do that. And they set that up. And there were 50 people working on developing and designing this and certifying this seat for, for these aircraft. Eventually, in 2012, this, the seat was launched. And, and actually, it was then, then placed onto the A330s. And this was the actual, uh, it was an award-winning seat, such as the 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 previous seat as well, so the upper class suite that had gone before was multi-awarder and so was this as well. But um, it was a very slightly different aesthetic, as you can see from the original, um, more modern, and um, but um, still kind of served the purpose and had the same kind of key attributes, the, the original product. 
the the one thing I kind of wanted to kind of finish on really, and then we can kind of open up and have some more discussions about some of the kind of the, the finer details if you like. But I think really the thing that I learned in my time at Virgin Atlantic was that really the intent to innovate in adversity actually has to start from the top. And I know that sounds like a cliche thing, but it's absolutely true. But the fundamental thing is, is that it has to be owned by everybody who is actually a part of that. And this is epitomized really by the brand idea that Virgin had um, along this whole process. They developed this idea that actually they realized within the company and the company culture was actually the whole company had everyday pioneers and this was their brand. And um, these are the, the, to the right and underneath the everyday pioneers they're, they're, you can see then the principles that actually that were led by the, uh, the organization and that enabled them. And I've just given you two examples really of some innovation, but there's a huge array of other, other kind of examples that I can, I could provide you. Um, but obviously we don't have time today. Um, there is one final thought as well is and I did reflect on, my time at Virgin Atlantic and the one thing that I always remember was that we always found a way to have fun when we were developing this and I think that's the key thing to innovation as well again I know it sounds kind of a bit of a throwaway comment but it was absolutely true I had it was a lot of fun there and actually that that brought everybody together and coalesced them around the, the, the kind of single point which was actually to develop something that was that was going to gain which was a game changer so there we go Thank you, Nick. That was really interesting. I, mean, I um, just to get the conversation going. I, I, I was wondering, in terms of your reflection, because I, mean, I know you mentioned about the time of designing the seat after nine eleven, and also when you came on board and were designing the next phase of that. That was obviously at the start of the financial crisis, which obviously was also quite a difficult time for the airline industry. Yeah. But I think probably what is going on now pales into insignificance in, in terms of what 9-11 and um, the financial crisis meant because pretty much I mean, like most airlines fleets are pretty much grounded and we have, there is no end to this, is there? So what would, what would your thoughts be on, on, on how different this, this crisis is and how we manage that? Yeah, I think the, the, it's very, in some ways it's the, the, what happened with 9-11 was a kind of smaller version of where we are right now. So that everybody kind of locked down the aviation world, especially the, well, the transatlantic route stopped. And that was the main source of income for Virgin Atlantic at the time. But I think, what what you have to do as well is I think is there's a kind of key learning from Virgin Atlantic is they use the resource that they had available to them at the time to actually to drive innovation. So it's looking within and saying, well, and that's what they did by setting up a company. So this set this crack commando team within Virgin. And, and as I said, I worked with a lot of these people when I first started there. Um, really, they would they just really, really kind of ambitious people, but wanted to kind of make change with everybody was singing from the same hymn sheet. So I think it was really, it's about using the resources available to you and, and looking for um, those kind of, I guess, those innovative ideas from within rather than searching for the, for the kind of the, the kind of the silver bullet, but there may be something within and, and trying to kind of understand what it is you actually have. Cause there is time now to actually think. And I, I know that there's time to take, take stock of what, what a, a direction of different all of us are taking stock of the different directions that we've been going in, whether it's personal or kind of corporate but i think you can look within and go actually you can start to see where there is quality that you can 
maybe you can kind of start to innovate on top of something else or bring ideas together look for inspiration from outside your industries as well I and mean, we see a lot of that now we see where you know we've got dyson also um, mclaren are all getting involved in in respirators and they're actually the key thing there is is they're taking what they're good at and actually repurposing it to actually to, to develop something new that's a really interesting point can i um can Sorry. i come in there johanna it's yeah Dave carson ask um nick to stop sharing his screen so we can right. start start seeing yeah. some people if deb if you want to do something then i want to bring in julian because that kind of leads on to um to right. nick's point as well yeah okay. sure no i just it just thanks nick for a really interesting presentation and i think that last point that you made there about you know innovation is not just about kind of looking at very sort of technical fixes i suppose it's also about looking at how people work and culture change and and you know how industries share things into in you know into sort of sector sharing i suppose um and i don't know if anyone's seen there was a really interesting article uh, it's a piece of research actually but i think it's in the railway gazette today um talking about how um the kind of impact of this virus and the kind of overlaid with people's kind of much more heightened um sort of in, in interest and understanding of climate change and how actually that that they are predicting in um i think the research is i haven't read it all actually because it only came out this morning um but you know it came from sort of europe and china and how actually that is very likely to lead to people using aviation far less and moving to and a switch to high-speed rail obviously i was reading it quite with a lot of interest because i work you know a head of ops for a, for a high-speed rail group so it's of great interest to us that kind of thing because obviously you know pipelines of work in this kind of current situation are you know going to be pretty important but also it's interesting isn't it that there'll be kind of winners and losers i suppose you know your presentation was all about the aviation industry and you know there's potential for quite a significant shift in the way people use transport in the future yeah. i think and that's as i said not just because of the virus but also because of um uh because you know people's kind of concerns about climate change and all of the you know various governments uh, commitments to to net zero targets Yeah, absolutely. I think I absolutely agree. I think it, now is the time to take stock of um, of where we are, and I think we, we we've been we've been forced to be locked down. But actually, it, personally, I am actually I am starting to evaluate where I am and and the kind of the direction of travel I've been taking um, and what's important to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Hi bring in Julian because he sort of like was was bringing up something on how do you promote innovation. <clears throat> Yeah, just thinking really in terms of Richard Branson being a well-known innovator and disruptor, and I think you're right to say that the innovation, the, the, the leaders have to set the innovation culture of the organisation. But it'd be interesting your thoughts about how you actually drive or encourage more of an innovative culture in taking rail. It can be viewed as quite a staid environment in some cases. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky <laughs> Rail is, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and my time at HS2, so three and a half years, I think, uh, as as customer experience um, head of customer experience, I was trying to drive a change in in kind of thinking around um, around the customer and putting the customer at the heart of of the decision making as early on as possible. In particular, in a big infrastructure project, that's quite quite challenging. But I think there there is I think you, 
it wasn't just uh, if, to, to give an example as well around Virgin Atlantic. Richard Branson was yes, he was the kind of the the the, the guy that you see on TV, the main kind of um, the ambassador. But the it was actually the guy below him, the CEO um, Steve Ridgway, that was actually instrumental in driving a lot of this this behaviour. And and he was actually a, a friend of Richard Branson's, and actually uh, he. He, he did the transatlantic crossing with him on his boat. So they were, they were good friends, but he, he, he within him, um, and then within his kind of, um, his kind of executive team, there was this, there was this kind of belief that, that, that actually that you can innovate and you can do, you can do these things. And that just basically by natural osmosis translated through the whole, the actual, the, the organization. And it was this, uh, and I always, I always use this term that when I worked at Virgin Atlantic, when I left, I felt like I was a, a stick of rock from the point I had Virgin Atlantic written thro throughout me. And maybe you, some people would say that was brainwashing, but it was actually because there was this innate belief in everybody and people did own, they owned the brand and they cared about it. And I, I think the problem with the rail industry at the moment in some cases is that it's difficult to understand the brand, the strength of the brand is not always there. It's, and I think that the com complexity with, with rail as well is that the, the customers don't actually, because of the, um, the, the way that the franchise agreement set up, you've got, you've got network rail and you've got the, the talks and nobody quite knows. Everybody puts the pressure on the talk, but actually it could be somebody else's fault for, for the situation. So it's, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Julian, but, um, I think it just has to, it, it, it is about, I think slowly but surely, if, if the person at the top is continually talking about it and championing it, I think it does filter through. And I, and I know that's difficult within rail because there's so many different components to rail uh, and there is not one owner. It was very different with Virgin Atlantic because it was just one brand, whereas the rail industry is, is a, a multitude, a patchwork quilt of different entities. So there is, a, there is an issue, uh, I think, but it, it has to come from the top. And, and where that where that lies within each organisation, uh, obviously, it's that that needs to be decided by the by the companies in question. Yeah, thank you, Nick. And I think probably also in rail, the, the safety culture sometimes gets in the way of innovation because people take a view that we can't do that because of the safety risk. When in some cases, it may be more of a business risk rather than a, an operational or passenger safety risk. That, you're absolutely right. But I, just to come back, I, I think you know aviation that was at the forefront of everybody's mind as well the security risk was was massive and we we were still able to that the seat that i i kind of designed that was the first time you had this kind of asymmetric herringbone um layout because it was very complex to certify but because of the belief that we they needed a new seat that that overrode everything else and actually but we never actually deviated from the security and safety we still had to certify that seat 16g to get it on the aircraft so i think there is there is a way if there's a will there's a way and um, can i bring in um i'm going to say sula free because i can't remember your name i'm sorry uh in into the conversation because he's been working on hyperloop and has been commenting um on the innovation i think that would be and just following on from deb's comments as well with high speed rail um what are your thoughts on that yeah so i'm just saying one of the primary concerns I've got within the rail industry is we're slow to innovate. Um, having worked in multiple industries from automotive to aero to <coughs> uh, utilities, you know, they try to innovate and find new ways of dealing with 
new technologies, we've taken a back seat in a certain degree. So my involvement with Hyperloop over the last year, year and a half, have actually been focusing on designing a product based around passengers. Yes. Uh, what are the passengers needs, what they're looking for. We're doing a, an end-to-end -end design from, not from when you enter the station, but actually from when you're booking your tickets. Yeah. So we have a host of projects kicked off over the last several years, looking at how to bring innovation, new technologies, apps, all sorts of stuff to make passengers' lives easier. Yes. Um, it's a huge project. I mean, one of the things about Hyperloop that I like so much, it's a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, we're, we're in a position to design the ideal transport mode um, yeah, and even look at new technology. So that gives us the opportunity because there's not, no infrastructure there already. It's, um, it's a lot easier to do that rather than do that in the rail when we've got to deal with talks, we've got to deal with the current infrastructure with network rail, with um, other government bodies. So um, I do think we need to be born braver and, uh, and look at how to innovate in the rail industry and uh, push those boundaries. Do you, do you think then that, um, that this is going to accelerate the implementation of Hyperloop? Um, funny you mention that. So I, I was talking to my team um, just the other day. Personally, I think with the current uh, economic <coughs> crisis that we have, I think Hyperloop will probably slow down because the cost involved in developing Hyperloop is immense. Um, I think we've got to take a, a step back and, and look at the, the essentials um, and I don't really think Hyperloop covers that right now. Uh, do I think, I mean, someone quoted at one stage to implement Hyperloop in the UK, it would cost around 50 to 55 billion pounds in the UK. Now, that's, that's, that's a nice to have project, not a necessity. So uh, from my position, from what I'm seeing, um, I see a lot of the development slowing down just because the funds aren't available. I think I can just jump in. Um, the, the number you just quoted so is, is less than HS2 funding. Mm, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, um, yeah agreed. But um, <clears throat> that's, that's a fantastic point. But I mean, do we have that amount of money to spend right now? Especially if you look at the, the urgent need we have for you know, pushing up the, uh, the NHS. Uh, are we in a position in the UK to invest so much money in a nice to have um, rather than building up what you know, the infrastructure that we need? And from a personal point of view, I just don't see how we can justify it. That's just a personal opinion. I mean, I know other countries around the world are in a better position and they're pushing forward, but um, we've got to look at our, the key infrastructure in the UK and see where we should invest our money and uh, how we can innovate what we've got and push that forward. Deb, what's, what's your view on high-speed rail versus Hyperloop? Um, I'm not. I'm not convinced about the business case for Hyperloop. To be honest, in in um, you know, I mean, there's been a, there is. A, I mean, obviously, what one could suggest that the business case, <laughs> with passenger numbers as they are now, might not stack up for any of these projects. But you know, in the kind of in in the business case that exists for HS2, um, I, I can't I can't see that stacking up for Hyperloop. So I mean, but having said that, I mean, what I was interested in was the. Um, you know, you're talking about rail being slow to innovate, which is, I hear that a lot. Um, and I just wondered, you know, what, like, what are, what makes that the case? What is it, what, what is it that about the rail sector that means that, that, that things move um, more, more, more slowly than they do in other sectors? 
I, that that is I know that's I suppose to some extent the million dollar question but I mean this is you know if we're all suggesting that now is the time to to start to think about how we do things differently what what are the perhaps the two or the three things that we would have to do differently to make that not the case and make the rail sector be a, a, um, a sector that can be much more quick and, and and braver about what they want to do to innovate so if, I, if i could just jump in here having spent three years on digital rail and obviously digital rail is trying to innovate the signaling systems for the railways i think part of the problem is we have uh, a reluctance to bring in new talent or outside skills um one of the frustrations I had was we were talking to engineers about designing a digital solution when they're great at designing stations and platforms and the engineering side. And when it comes to data, that, that's when they sort of struggle. I think we, we don't look at the, the next generation of engineers that can drive us forward. We're too busy looking backwards. That's just been my, my experience, you know, in the last three, four years on digital rail. I think one of the fundamental challenges that rail industry has is that there is a this the current structure with network rail means that there's a an al almost a complete lack of focus on the passengers um it's almost like the, the the expenditure is within the engineering section rather than i mean if we take nick's example of virgin um Virgin well, is well known for being completely focused on passenger experience. And I think that that, that is what's lacking in the rail industry. Has, um, has anyone felt that with, um, with the change in chief executive over the last 18 months, that network rail has, is now concentrating more on the passenger experience, or do you think it's still too early to tell? I think without without a without a fundamental change in the infrastructure, the, the sort of the way network rail and the tops are, are related, I don't think I I think it, it's a huge problem to try and solve. Let me put it like that. Um, I just want to bring in Andy Houghton um, because he he's made a comment about assets and innovation with technology and also about that that customer experience. What are your thoughts, Andy? It was always always a challenge with it when I was within the industry. Um, in tox side that chain it and remove the word innovation use the word change because essentially that's what we're talking about isn't it it's a change to the way that things happen and my old team we always used to say that we were there to give the guys on the front line the tools to do the j job but it was up to them as and working with them to make sure that they had the right tools is key but i think the majority of the rail industry the front facing face of it are the people on the front line the station teams the guards on trains and drivers as well and it's those people that that are the public face of the industry so to and and dave mentioned something a few minutes ago about um how it, it's difficult to make change in in a, an engineering way i'm paraphrasing here but the bringing it back to the core aspect of it it's the customers on the front line that pay the bills that move it along so is rail anything more different than a customer service business that happens to run trains um, and a former customer experience director of mine used to um, say that many times to us over the years and i don't think it is any different so to actually make sure that the guys on the ground feel empowered to do things that little bit differently I think that's one of the biggest pieces of innovation that we can do. 
to take the shackles off the guys that are doing this day in, day out, and to engage them in the innovation conversations higher up, to get them the tools mm -hmm. to do the day job. Um, I know a number of the talks where there are innovation managers um, in place. Um, I use Northern, LNER, and TPE um, as examples of ones that I know, and I think Marcus at um, Southwest has done the same. Actually, having people from the front line coming in and giving them their problem statements in order to say this will help us do our day job better. But these are the guys on the ground that really drive change. And if they're happier because they're being listened to by their management and by the, the echelons going all the way up to the chief execs and the MDs and the heads of the owning group and the Andrew Haynes of the world, um, then to me, that's the, that's the starting point of all of this. And we, for all of us in the technology world, we've got these remarkable bits of software or hardware, et cetera and we're coming in and, and granted from a sales point of view where i am now it's difficult to actually get to the right person who will see the value in what you're trying to offer and i think anybody who's in that um that sphere on the call would, would agree that there's a challenge but it's almost like instead of going at the top we need to come in from the ground up where true innovation will actually happen day in day out i think that's interesting and i think Ad, adam steve's just come in with a comment nick do you want to comment maybe on how um, Virgin involves frontline teams in, in your innovation? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a really good comment by Andy. Um, and just to kind of to pick up on that point, I, what we used to do is actually the work that I've just shown you, the cabin environment, which I kind of used to lead the team on. It was all about actually the, the, the cabin crew and the, the staff. The, they were the walking, talking brand, and you could have all of these ancillary items around, but actually, when it, fundamentally, you had need to empower the, 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 the actual the crew themselves to deliver, or, or the staff who were dealing with the customer to actually deliver the brand. And that's why we, we would, the way that we would develop the whole idea was was an end-to-end -end journey, um, as we talked about previously, and thinking about that interaction and how the, the actual environment created almost this this canvas for the for the crew to paint the, the kind of the, the customer experience upon mm. and that's why then they weren't robots they they weren't scripted some airlines you 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 travel with there's a very there's a very hard line about what you can and cannot say and i've got so many I've, like don't get me wrong virgin got stuff wrong as well <laughs> but by the nature of it they were i believe they were much more human because they were they were allowed freedom and they were empowered and also because you know they the the actual the uniform they wore they were proud to wear it and that came back to live and eat and breathe it coming from the top when people you know it was it was it was quite um it, the organization wasn't layers and layers and layers that actually you could walk around the organization and the crew could actually talk to the ceo in the in the, in the canteen have a, just a normal conversation with him and actually tell them about things that were going on and, and things would get sorted. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. And I think that it was the culture within the, com the company itself led to the, the, a good delivery of, of that service. But equally, people did feel empowered because of that, uh, because they felt like they were part of the family. Yeah. Does that um, answer the question? Sorry. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to bring in um, Juliana um, because Juliana's made a really good point when we're um, in terms of Andy saying about you know, a service um, because we've spoken a lot about mobility as a service but where is that now? 
just, it's whatever we call it, isn't it? I think mobility as a service, if you look at all these hyped tech trends of certain years and you see things rise and fall, I think it's just how we're going to think about ourselves. I think it's a useful term to think that, you know, we're, we, we are delivering a service. We're not, it doesn't need to be bits of kit. It just needs to be what, what is the service? The service is for the passenger or the, the, freight, the freight customer or something like that. So I think it's still a useful way of reframing our thinking. And also when we talk about rail as a service, we don't think of ourselves in isolation. We think of the mobility as a joined up journey so that, you know, there's my, one of my favorite statistics, which is super grim, especially as a railway engineer, but that rail only makes up two to 3% of journeys in the whole country every day, right? So there's a lot of market share that we're leaving on the table. And there's a lot of ways that we're not relevant using a network that was designed 200 years ago or 150 years ago, these sorts of things. So there's, there is everything to play for. There is everything you know, we could do in infrastructure as well as service, operating models, commercial models. Some of these are quite restricted though COVID might shake them up. But right, I, I think it's just useful to keep thinking of that service. As they've said, it's about the people who are delivering about people's systems the way you run your business, the way you have your culture and soft stuff that people love to dismiss. And rail engineering is all about that. We love bits of kit and crayons and things, but you know, it's not helpful. And it, it, it's, it, as uh, people have pointed out, network rail is structured to say, yeah, we're all about engineering. And it's okay, it, it's a time for a different narrative. Two to 3% of journeys a day, whoop-de-doo, we've got nothing and we're making ourselves irrelevant. Do you think that's a, a greater challenge then, given the COVID-19 um, crisis in the fact that people will move away from public transport when we start getting back to some sort of normality? Or can engineers offer some sort of solution to that? Yeah, because engineers are already creative thinkers and they have all the tools to learn new things, I think this is our opportunity to regroup. You know, if we were really smart, we would see Network Rail come out with a whole comms campaign and the DFT come out with a whole comms campaign off the back of this saying, well, hang on, we still need to accomplish carbon targets. That's our biggest buzzword. That's something everyone can understand and is broadly behind now. What are the tools in our toolbox? Rail is absolutely one of those most important tools. So, you know, it's about promoting, it's about joining up with other transport, joining housing and land use with railways, right? Just getting outside of our bubble and having that innovation about how we deliver, you know, deliver an actual service or what we do as a function, as a profession, um, and, and really changing that, making it relevant for people so that we come out on top when people are ready to come back to standardized economic movements and maybe even change their behaviors. I think that's great and I just want to bring in a couple of other people on that because I've got Mill Williams talking about you know how we do procurement and then a couple of people have come in earlier Craig Sapio about um, using innovation allowances and also got Chris Jones as well who's talking about limitations of um, private set of government funding to lead innovation so so what's your thoughts on that? Will I go first? Yeah. Okay um, so I've been through a couple of procurement processes. One of them was, was with DASA, which is quite a heavy process, uh, the Defence Accelerator. Uh, I also worked with MerseyRail uh, as, uh, customers, as customer services on stations and platforms and so forth um, in September, October 2019, and then in 2020, early on, whilst we were still allowed to go out. 
Um, so I've seen it from the point of view of somebody trying to supply, and I've seen it from the point of view of the guys, the women and men, all genders, on station working and having ideas and not getting their ideas through. Um, and I think that's a really important thing, Nick's, Nick's uh, presentation on everybody owning things. That everybody, if, if, it, if it actually gets to the point where it's not just the workforces, but it's also the customers who express affection and a desire to communicate their ideas to the company voluntarily, if you can actually get to that point, uh, then everybody, workforces, C-suite, suppliers, and customers, that's a sweet point that would help every, every single process. But I think we really do need to get to the point where procurement is a question of identifying problems before bringing in solutions that are looking for problems. I honestly think that would improve things dramatically. So Chris Jones, what do you think of, of a different way of procuring the stuff that we need to buy? So we're, we're emotionalizing, I guess, what it is we want to buy. So we're not going straight to the solution and stuff. It would not mute again, here we are. Um, <laughs> so, so my point, it's more about, it goes back to the conversation about the, the way in which rail lags behind the rest of technology and the rest of all other industries and the way they innovate. And it comes down to the fact that rail is inherently very expensive. And the comparison was drawn of the cost of HS2 versus potentially implementing Hyperloop. The point is HS2 is a tried and tested technology. We've been using it since the Victorian times. Whether or not you agree it's right that we continue to implement Victorian railways is another separate argument. But there's no private companies out there who have the capital or the ability to finance at a scale that you could implement HS2 as a national network, uh, HS2, sorry, a Hyperloop as a national network because of the cost of it. So therefore, you're going to need some form of government backing or some form of government finance. I, as government, if I was to implement HS2, as they are, um, you can spend taxpayers' money on more than that. Whereas if I was to say to, not to us, because we understand transport in this arena, uh, we understand railways. Um, if you'd say to the average taxpayer, I'm going to spend 50 billion of your hard-earned money on trying out a technology, I don't know if it's going to work. So for me, that is why I think that innovation on that scale doesn't happen. What I think we need is like what Elon Musk was doing where he's trying out his system on a very small scale, but proving it does work and then it will grow larger and larger. But the fact is when things cost as much as they do on a national scale, particularly railways, I think we are always going to lag behind. And of course, Elon's doing that with billions of pounds as well. But um, I just yeah. want to bring in as a, as, as, the, as our, unfortunately our last um, speaker, um, Craig Sapio, who has mentioned about and at the energy industry and network innovation as but could that be a solution to our funding issues yeah thanks joanna so uh, it's really interesting to hear some of the some of the points that are being raised so as i say almost as a an outsider and um, we're a company working within the energy industry um talking about the government support and and the the funding requirements that's exactly what the energy industry had experienced um, so in 2011, there was a big push by Ofgem to say to the um, energy distribution companies, uh, look, you, you're not doing enough innovation. And innovation is a way to save customers money and improve um, you know, the energy experience that they're getting, the service you're providing. So we need you to innovate. And Ofgem had to essentially step in um, because the, the um, companies were very much taking the approach of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So to Nick's kind of comment at the very start of this and Richard Branson's approach, Ofgem almost needed to step in and say, look, you need to innovate here. 
And essentially, they did a price control. So effectively, um, ourselves as customers, the amount that we pay to our energy retailers is a little bit taken off the top of that. It's obviously to um, ensure the infrastructure for distributing electricity and gas um, is maintained and works. And Ofgem said, right, um, uh, distribution companies, you're not going to get this little section off the top unless you actually innovate and use that money towards innovation projects. So they did, they did get the point that it's sometimes it's difficult for the companies themselves to justify the spend. And so they need something that they can actually use to, to, to actually procure innovation and move it forward. Um, so yeah, that was the approach the energy industry um, took. And it's interesting to hear that, that it seems to be the general consensus because here that maybe something like that needs to happen within the, the rail industry as well, just given the number of parties involved. It's that that is re really insightful and I think um, we unfortunately we have reached the end of our time um, I hope you have all enjoyed it I want to say thank you to Nick for um, for joining us today and being our speaker um, but also I think two things that I've personally taken away is apart from that now is the time to innovate it, you know listening to um, Juliana is that we need to be thinking about what the future of rail is and how we do regroup and actually it's not just about rail it's about that wider system and still continuing our carbon targets are still going to be needed at the end of it so again once again thank you I was supposed to um, ask if anybody needed anything at um at the end of it but if you can either email myself or Liam you can contact us through the rail innovation group on LinkedIn or you can email us direct directly and we do have another webinar planned for um, a week Friday but I've got no idea what the date is because like everybody else I'm losing all semblance of time so but we do plan to have all of these weekly and please keep up the conversation thank you